This morning, we start with a man sitting outside the temple. Lots of people coming and going, and this man is just sitting there with other beggars, and he is crying out for alms, gifts to be given to him. He's in that position because he was born blind. He has never had sight a single day in his life. As we meet this man in John chapter 9, our assumptions about who he is and what he might be thinking, how intelligent he is, how much he's got in his head, how much knowledge he has, how much understanding he has about what's happening around him, all of our assumptions about him are going to be challenged. This man is smart, he is engaged. He knows and understands deeply what is happening all around him, but he is disenfranchised. He is stuck. As a man born blind, he is in this place where he cannot contribute to society. His place is fixed. It is at the gate of the temple to receive gifts and pity, and that's it. That's your place. That's where you belong, and... You are an outsider to everything else. You're an outsider to the, the decision-making, the money-making, the, the contribution to the culture. You're just to sit there and receive while people pass by and you receive something of the overflow of whatever they may decide to give you out of their pity. This is the man we're going to look at over the next four weeks. This man is going to meet Jesus. In order for us to understand why Jesus approaches this man the way he does, and in order to understand really what happens to this man and why he responds to Jesus and to life after this the way he does, we're going to take some time this morning to talk about the Gospel of John as a whole why that book was written, and the story that John is telling as an old man, remembering this event, being an eyewitness of it, and and getting a sense of what John was after in telling this story. Once we get that, this story is going to fall into place, and we are going to find ourselves identifying with this man in some powerful ways. So I'd like to begin talking with you this morning about the Gospel of John and the reasons John wrote this Gospel. Why did he tell us this story about a man born blind? Why did he tell us the story of a woman at a well in Samaria? Why did he tell us, going further back, about Jesus talking to a Pharisee, Nicodemus, uh, and at night time, telling him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Why did John tell us all of these stories? Well, John wrote a book, this book, to a worldwide global audience. It was diverse, it was deeply mixed, and it was deeply polarized. That audience began with Jewish people who lived all over the world, from North Africa 
all the way around to Spain, modern-day Spain. They lived in modern-day Turkey. They lived in Rome. They lived in Syria. All over the world, you could go into any city you wanted and find a Jewish community. And in this global Jewish community, it was founded basically on three things. A strict religion. An understanding of who they were before God given by the law of Moses and a strict and careful adherence to that law. And because wherever they went and whatever city they were in, they took that understanding of the law of God to that city, they had a very strong subculture. If you were a Jewish person traveling from Antioch to some other place in, uh, in uh, let's say, modern-day Lebanon or up into Turkey. If you're walking those Roman roads, you come into another city and find a synagogue, you are going to fit in there. You're going to have a strong identity there because these are your people. You understand how they think. They understand how you think. And so there is that strong uh, subculture and there is a strong identity as part of that. As a Jewish person, no matter where you are in the world, whether it's Alexandria in Egypt or Rome in Italy, you know who you are. You follow the one true and living God, Yahweh, and your whole identity is built on that one thing. So John is writing to an audience that includes Jewish people. He's also writing to another kind of audience. He's writing to Gentiles. We know this because at various points in his gospel, he starts translating different names and explaining places, explaining certain customs, things that people who were not Jewish might not understand about the story he's telling about Jesus relating to the people in Israel. The Gentiles were very different in their orientation. Where the Jewish people founded their worldview on a strict religion, Gentiles were broadening. They were becoming, they were leaving behind what they saw as the narrowness of religion. And throughout the Roman Empire, they were broadening their horizons, embracing more paths of spirituality, more traditions, building a pantheon in Rome to hold all the gods together because there are many different paths. And so the, the Gentiles in the Roman Empire, like people today in the American Empire, are saying, it's not about religion, it's about philosophy. It's about taking it all in and in a strict and disciplined way becoming familiar with all of these things, recognizing their narrow distinctions for what they are, outgrowing that and becoming more sophisticated, taking in more spiritual and intellectual territory. A a key idea uh, philosophically among Gentiles at this time, was called Gnosticism. Here's the basic idea of Gnosticism. The physical world doesn't matter. It's the spiritual things that matter. That's what's pure. It's the change 
uh, in your spirit, in your heart, that really matters. It's how you are enlightened, how you find illumination. What happens in your physical life is of no consequence whatsoever. And so the most cutting-edge culture of its time was saying physical things don't matter. In fact, the physical world is corrupt. We need to transcend it. We need to get bigger than that. Human potential is so much larger than our physical limitations. So if you want um, the summary of Gnosticism, you just go to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You get to the end of it, and there's old Dr. Jones Sr. He's found the Holy Grail. He's been physically healed by the Holy Grail, but the ground opens up, swallows up the Holy Grail. They escape, and all the dust comes out of Petra and all that stuff. You remember the scene. They lost it all. They didn't have the Grail when they left. And so someone asks Dr. Jones Sr., what did you get out of this quest? Because you didn't get the grail. The answer is with one word. Illumination. That's Gnosticism in a nutshell. The physical stuff doesn't matter. It's the spiritual stuff. It's the mind expanding stuff. It's the experiential stuff that matters. That's the cutting edge culture in uh, Gentile culture at that time. And it is a very strong aspirational identity. Not every Gentile was a Gnostic, not every Gentile was a philosopher, but they all knew these are the trendsetters. If you want to know how to talk, if you want to know what's coming, if you want to know what the cutting edge is, look to these people. They will tell you what's PC, the words to use, and how to act. This was the aspiring identity of Gentile culture. Also, um, it included a lot of Jews uh, in in addition to that. Uh, So, John takes these two audiences, and he's got a problem with both of them. He says, both of these audiences have problems in relating to Jesus. And the reason he wrote the Gospel of John was this. I'm going to show both the Jewish audience and the Gentile audience how far away from them Jesus really is. How big the gap is between the Jewish values and the Gentile values and Jesus. John writes his gospel as a man uh, toward the end of his life, basically to say to a globalized culture at his time, I don't care what's cutting edge. I don't care what your group is doing. I don't care what your identity is. I want you to find Jesus in the midst of all of that and see that you can have life in his name. That is why John wrote his gospel. It affects how he tells us who Jesus is. It affects the story we're going to jump into this morning in John chapter 9, how Jesus interacts with the man born blind. So, let's go back in the Gospel of John to chapter 1. I want to show you just in, in a sketch here how John has been presenting Jesus up to the time that he meets the man born blind. 
Let's start with the Gentile audience. How does John, this old disciple of Jesus, portray Jesus to these sophisticated Gentiles or the Gentiles who know they're supposed to be sophisticated and are trying to keep up? How does he do it? Well, the Gnostics had a couple of favorite words. Logos, word, and phos, light. You can see why they liked those words. The Gnostics were all about the intellect, the spirit, and illumination. Dr. Jones, what did you get out of this? Illumination. That's what they love. So the word, logic, thinking, philosophy, that's very high on their list. And light, illumination, enlightenment, mind-expanding kind of LSD stuff for some of them. That's what they're all about. Do they care about the body? Do they care about creation, nature? Not so much. We're going to outgrow that because human potential is so much bigger. Look at how John begins his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Logos. All those Gentiles, those sophisticated people are saying, right on. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. That's exactly right. Yay, John's pretty sophisticated. He's pretty cutting edge. We like this guy because he loves the Logos. And we know right where he's headed with this, except they don't. Verse 3. Verse 2, rather, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, not anything made that was made. What? What are you talking about? God, the pure God, who brings us to enlightenment progressively. He didn't make the world. The bad God made the world to corrupt the purity of our spirits. So you're saying that the Logos is God and that the Logos made the physical world? No. No, that is so backward. I guess this guy doesn't have it after all. It gets even worse. Drop down to verse 14. The Logos, God, not only did this disgusting thing of creating the physical world, he became what? Flesh. He actually entered it. That doesn't make any sense. That is so backward. That is on the wrong side of history, John. Because for you to say that the Logos left purity and enlightenment and spirituality and came down into the yuck of the physical world, you're just talking gibberish. That is so backward. That is, John, that is so narrow. That's old talk. All of that stuff is over. We're outgrowing that. Look at um, John chapter 8. 
show you a little bit more of how John presents Jesus interacting with people. It's not like he states these things at the beginning and then drops these points later because he knows they're kind of offensive. He actually dwells on them and he keeps coming back to them and even hammering on them because he's taking the Jesus he knew and learned from and loved and he's saying, now you need to understand who this guy was. He was not in your sophisticated cutting edge camp. And if you think he was, you got something else coming because I was there. Here's what Jesus said, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them. These are Jewish people now. So in John's big audience here, you've got Gentiles listening in on a scene where Jesus talks to Jews. And what does Jesus say to them? I am the light, the force of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus here himself is saying, I am the force. I am the light. I am the enlightenment that you seek. I have it. I embody it. And I came here into the physical world that I created to tell you about it so that you could have life in my name. Now, there's something very interesting about this. Um, Jesus keeps coming back to one point when he talks to people, and that is his father. In the beginning, the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was sent by God into the creation to bring light and life to the world. So drop down in John chapter 8, and um, we look at uh, some of the things Jesus said about death. And we're talking about physical death here. Um, The Jews, verse 52, said to Jesus, Now we know that you have a demon, Abraham died, and the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Are you saying, Jesus, that you actually conquer physical death and that you bring physical life back into the creation? Is that what you're saying? Because if Abraham was looking for you, then that's what you're saying. Abraham died. He couldn't have seen you. Here's Jesus' answer. Remember, Gentiles listening in while Jesus talks to Jews. Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And he he basically says, I came from God to bring you the light of life because I am the light of the world. And that life is going to be eternal, physical life in my name. So who do I make myself out to be? Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, meaning 
he physically saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? So you're the Gentiles listening in on this, this narrow, bigoted, religious discussion that Jesus is having with these Jewish people, and you're saying, yep, that's why we're going to leave all that behind. Because this is so narrow, it's so backward, it's so yesterday, it's so BC, although they wouldn't have put it that way. This is so over. And yet here is Jesus in John's telling saying, no, I'm going to bring you physical life and eternal life. So that's how John relates to the Gentile part of his audience. You know what's funny about this? It's almost as if John wanted, was trying to turn them off and disgust them and embarrass them. It's almost, with his presentation of Jesus, it's almost like he's saying, look at this. You hate this, don't you? It embarrasses you that someone would come to claim to be the light of the world and care so much about what you think is so disgusting and so backward. So, we might have uh, an assumption here. Well, Jesus isn't going to relate very well to Gentiles. He's going to relate much better to the Jews, right? That's his nation. Those are his people. It's his religion. They share the, the same scriptures. So John's going to line him up with the Jews and show the Jewish people how compatible Jesus is with them and their way of thinking, right? Turn the page back to John chapter 7. Let's relate Jesus to the Jewish audience of the Gospel of John. In John chapter 7, John shows us an Israel deeply divided about Jesus. They can't agree about his education. Look at verse 15. About the middle of the feast, verse 14, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Where did he go to school? How can Jesus teach so much if he didn't graduate from the Jesus Seminar? Where's his diploma from? Where did he do his doctoral work? Who who was his teacher, his rabbi. We don't know. We can't trace his lineage. He hasn't got any, any, um, any piece of paper to show us. So they're divided over where his teaching is coming from. And we can't put this together, why your teaching is so deep, but we can't find the source of it. He tells them the source of it, verse 16. Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Notice his orientation right back to his father, right back to God. In the beginning, the word was with God, the word was God. He came from God to bring light and life into the world. So Jesus basically says, the source of my teaching is not you, you're right, and it's not your professors, you're right about that too, it's God. They're divided 
about his relationship to the prophets and to um, prophecy. They can't interpret him the way they traditionally understand what the old prophets said. Um, Verse 26. Here is Jesus, these are the people talking, speaking openly, and you know the, we know the authorities want to kill him, but here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Maybe they know something we don't. Maybe they don't like it, but they see that Jesus is starting to fulfill the prophets. But they can't even put this together, verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. He comes from Galilee. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So they can't agree about his education. They can't agree about his relationship to the prophetic scriptures. They also can't even agree about what his teaching means. Drop down to verse 34. Jesus says to the Jewish people, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Where is he going? He came from the Father. He is going to die. He is going to rise again and he is going to go back to the Father. And he's saying, you can't go there with me. Not yet. So that's a fairly important point of teaching. Do the Jews understand it? Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Is he going to go you know, north and, and west? Is he going to go on a big tour of the Roman Empire here? Is that what he's talking about? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So they can't agree about his education, they can't agree about his relation to prophecy, and they can't even make sense of the words coming out of his mouth. Israel is divided about who Jesus is. Why is John telling us this? He is showing us that Jesus' relationship to Israel is deeply divided, even hostile. Go back to John chapter 8. And pick up the end of that story right where we left it. We were talking about Abraham in verse 57 of John chapter 8. This is the founder of the Jewish people. The one that uh, they will trace all of their genealogy back to. And they're basically asking Jesus, are you greater than Abraham? Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The Logos in the beginning was with God, and he was God. He made all things. Nothing was made without him, not even Abraham. What is he saying to them? Yes, to answer your question, I am greater than Abraham. Because I am God. And their response to this, verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him. They weren't just going to kind of pester him or harass him. When they say stones, they mean big stones that they were going to kill him with. 
They were gearing up for an execution right there because he claimed to be God. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What kind of story is this? John is telling us about a Jesus who doesn't fit anything in the world at that time. Not anything. He's not cutting edge. He's too backward to be sophisticated. So the Gentiles aren't going to listen to him. He can't fit that identity. And he can't even fit the Jewish identity that he was born into because he's at loggerheads with them. This is quite a sales pitch, isn't it? John wants people to know Jesus and his messages. Yeah, Jesus doesn't fit anything that you know. And he's not on board with anything that you love. He's not on board with your sophistication. He's not on board with your religion. He doesn't care about your aspirations to be cutting edge. And he doesn't care about your aspirations to be faithful to the religion of the past. He is not about rebuilding your life. Period. Jesus is about something else entirely. That's John's message. It's stark, it's radical, and it's one of the reasons that the book of John has such a modern feel to it. Because we are a globalized culture, and we are the American empire, and we think that we can transcend all limitations if we just embrace all the paths. And yet, we've still got all these pockets of religious identity resisting that modern, globalized world. And so it's kind of like for, for us in, in the world culture that we are in, you've got to fit into one or the other. You've got to go with the globalizing philosophy. You've got to be part of that total American empire culture. And you've got to embrace the PC of it, the cutting edge of it, and the values of it. Or you've got to retreat into some narrow little cult and be some kind of fundamentalist stuck away somewhere with a narrow, rigorous adherence to a religious code. And those are your choices. In the first century, John said, no, those are not your choices. You have another choice, and his name is Jesus. So fresh from almost getting killed. Jesus, having taught in the temple, seeing the rage, hearing the screams and the yells, watching his opponents pick up huge rocks so that they can execute him right there on the spot for blasphemy. Fresh from that, Jesus hides himself, and leaves the temple. That's when he meets the man born blind. Same day, same hour. The adrenaline hasn't even gone out of his body yet. Chapter 9, verse 1. 
comes across this guy. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So here's our beggar sitting there beside the gate or just outside of it. Jesus really uh, fleeing for his life here and his disciples. I love the disciples. They have this way of saying completely random things as if they're just not really processing what's gone on here. So they're fleeing for their lives. <clears throat> and verse 2, his disciples asked him, pointing to this man, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. They want to talk theology now while they flee for their lives. Uh, so they look at this, <laughs> look at this beggar. And they judge him. Judgment's automatic. You notice the question is not maybe a question that we would ask. We might ask, did someone sin? And that is why this man was born blind. That's not what they ask. They assume that someone sinned. And they're asking, who did it? Was it this guy's fault or was it his parents' fault? Fix responsibility here for this guy being on the outside of Jewish identity. He's outside the temple. He cannot participate in society. His place is fixed, permanently disenfranchised. All he can do is receive people's pity and gifts. Done. We've settled this. So they're, all they're asking out of this strict religious code and out of this very strong Jewish identity, they're asking, whose fault is this? Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents. Okay, so we stop right there and we realize how revolutionary that one statement is. Jesus is saying, no, no your whole frame of reference for this is wrong. You're looking at this from the point of view of Jewish identity and strict conformity to the law of Moses. I am not looking at it from that point of view. Why? Because I come from God. And I know what this is actually about. No one sinned that made this happen. This is not a punishment for that purpose. What he does say is maybe even more shocking. Again, verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What? He's suffering so that God can make his suffering, his pain, his disenfranchisement, his outsider status. He can make all of that into a display of his power, his glory. Yes. And Jesus basically says, in fact, I have an appointment with this man and it's right now. So this outsider born into Jewish culture with Jewish parents has no place but this frozen, disenfranchised place, he's an outsider to his own people. Now, if you were to ask 
the Gentiles kind of listening in on this, on this scene, the sophisticated cutting-edge people, does he really have a problem, this man? Does, does his blindness inhibit him in any way? The Gnostic is going to say very simply, no, he just needs to transcend his physical limitations and gain illumination. His body doesn't matter. It's not like his eyes are the problem here. His human potential is so much bigger than that. And so what we care about is his, his spiritual enlightenment. So he doesn't even have a problem, according to the cutting-edge culture, listening in on this scene. So, how does Jesus proceed here? Look at verse 5, and let's look at this from the point of view of that Gentile audience again. Jesus has just said, this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he says, we must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. And he says this then, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's exactly what he said back in chapter 8 and verse 12. I am the light of the world. He was the light of life, said John in chapter 1. And so he says here, This is the light working time. This is when the fos shines out and is going to shine on this guy right now and I'm the one who's going to do this. Now, maybe the Gentile audience is saying, right on, that is what this guy needs. He needs spiritual light so that he will be illuminated. So what does Jesus do having made this intense spiritual statement about him being the light of the world Verse 6, having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. See what John's doing here? He's got his eye on that cutting-edge Gentile audience. He's saying, you want to know what Jesus cared about in this situation? The man's body. And by the way, the creator who made all living physical things loves dirt. And he loves to mess with it. So there. And what Jesus is going to do for this man, he's going to do with mud and saliva. Now, we all have uh, sort of sanitation issues with this. Jesus doesn't even care about that. He made mud with the saliva, then it gets even grosser. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud. So you get the picture here. He's kneeling down in the ground. They're still putting stones away in the temple, by the way. He's just outside, and he's making up this this little mud pie out of his spit. He's going to take that mud, he gets it all over his hands, and then plasters it on this guy's eyes. Gross! Why is he doing this? Verse 7, And he said to him, Go, wash. Well, I wouldn't have to do that 
if you hadn't put mud on my eyes. Doesn't tell him why he didn't. He didn't ask permission. There is just very invasive person, Jesus. Doesn't really care about personal space. It's just fingers in your eye with mud. Now go wash. By the way, this man doesn't ask for any of this. He didn't ask to be born blind. He didn't ask to have the work of God displayed in him. And he didn't ask to be healed. He especially didn't ask for it this way. Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And here's one of John's little translations for his Gentile audience. By the way, Gentiles, that means sent. Get it? Jesus sent him to the pool to wash. Why? Surely Jesus, because he's the light of the world and he's the creator, all he had to do was speak and his eyes would open. He did that in other instances. Why does he do this? Why does he send this beggar who people pass every single day through the streets of Jerusalem to the pool with mud on his face to wash there? Why does he have this guy get down into that pool, wash his face, and then return? Why the process? Why so physical? Publicity, basically. The works of God are going to be displayed in this man. Lots of people are going to see this happen. No one will be able to deny it. And he came back seeing. Well, this is great. This guy's life has completely changed. Now he can be a participant in society. Everybody's going to rejoice over this. They're all going to give glory to God. It's going to be the Hallmark Channel ending right here. And the music's going to queue up and everything. Right? Well, you'll notice if you turn the page over, this chapter goes on quite a while. This man is only at the beginning of his troubles. Because when he comes back, verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit here and beg? Sure looks like that guy, but that guy was blind and this guy can see. Fairly obvious problem here. Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. It just looks like him. But, you know, that guy was blind. This guy can see. They obviously can't be the same. See what's happening here? Human thinking, good old-fashioned reasoning is happening here. It can't be both a blind guy and a seeing guy. Obviously, we have two guys. In other words, this great miracle happens. It happens in a verifiable way, and nobody believes it. This man's life has changed, and all he gets from the people around him is avoidance of the fact. Verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 9. He kept saying, I am the man. He wants people to rejoice with him. Have you ever been in this position? I want people to know what Jesus did for me. I want people to see the big change that he worked in my life. Here's the thing I hear more and more these days from people coming to this church, seeking for a church. I hear this. I know Jesus is my Savior. I know he is the only way. I know I need to follow him 
but I can't get anybody to listen to me. My family doesn't believe it. My identity faction doesn't believe it. My LGBT friends don't believe it. The people at work don't believe it. And the people at school don't believe it. My boss doesn't believe it. I can't get anybody to listen to this. And I'm afraid that if I go to a church, it's going to be that narrow, old code. And I can't fit that either. I was an outsider there first, and now I'm an outsider to everyone else who I used to be in with. And it's all because of Jesus. I hear this more and more and more. That's why we're talking about this story. Because this man is now a double outsider. And he is going to be avoided by the very people who had a place for him before. And now even that place that he had is gone. So uh, they, they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? Tell us, what happened here? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my physical sight. I can see now. They said to him, Where is he? Let's, let us talk to him. And he said, I don't know. Because the fact is, the man born blind has never physically seen his Savior. He just felt his fingers on his eyes. It's amazing. We're going to leave the story there. Because we are in a place today where many of us are saying, where do I fit? Who do I go with? How can I make this work? Because I, I can't fit the old religious code and I am sick and tired of trying to keep up with the cutting edge and what all of the sophisticated people keep telling me to do. They are not helping me. They, are not, they don't care about me. They care about their agendas. And they have proved it to me over and over and over again. But where do I go? What do I do? We're going to talk about what it means to follow Jesus in a fragmented world where it looks like you're a double outsider to everybody and what it means to belong to Jesus and to his people. The fact is, what we are creating here in this church and in many churches like it is a new community of people who don't fit anywhere else. All we've got is Him. And so we're following Him. We're going to follow Him together. We're going to get used to all of the outsider status that we all bring to this place. And we're going to understand that. We're going to listen to it. We're going to work through it. And then we're going to get to work and follow our Jesus because we belong to Him. Couple points of evaluation. Questions I'd like you to ask. Jesus' priority in everything 
is not to prop our lives back up. His priority is to take the old identities away and replace those identities with a new living identity in him. So given that is the case, in whatever way that you are suffering today, how can your suffering meet Jesus' ultimate priority of glorifying God? That's what he cares about. That's why he came. I want to connect you with the light of the truth of God. I want to connect you with his goodness and with life in his name, eternal life. If you're suffering today, can you line up that suffering with Jesus' purpose of making you a display of the power and glory of God? Come what may. No matter who rejects you, no matter who avoids you, no matter what happens, no matter who receives you, no matter what, will you make, offer up your suffering to Jesus to become a display of his grace and his goodness? And how might that work? I'd like you to ponder that question, and then I would like you to be more specific. What exactly do you feel that you need from Jesus? What kind of healing? What kind of cleansing? Maybe it is a physical healing. Maybe it is a, a profoundly physical trauma and cleansing that you need from something that has happened in your life or something that you have done that has brought that trauma upon you. What is this thing that you need from him? We're, we're going to be challenging each other to take that suffering, those needs, hand them over to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, make me a display of the glory of God and I will glorify him, I will praise him, I will praise you and I will follow you no matter where you lead. Though none go with me, I will follow. This is the place we want to get to as God's people. And I'm offering these questions to you, whether you're a church person or a church, for lack of a better description, a dropout from church. I just I had enough of that a number of years ago, and now I'm trying to figure out how do I come back to that? Or maybe someone who is saying, I have absolutely no background in this whatsoever This is the first sermon I've ever heard all the way through. Start with these questions and take these very basic things and in this moment, right now, you can call upon the name of Jesus and ask him to make you a display of his grace, his cleansing, his healing, and his goodness. If you are a church person and you're saying yeah I've heard this story lots of times in fact I had the sermon running the minute I heard what scripture you were going to be talking about I've heard this so many times but yet 
I've lost it. I do not recognize my Savior anymore. These questions are also for you. You see what this does? This brings us all back to the same place, offering our suffering and our difficulty, our needs up to Jesus Christ to become a display of the glory of God. We can all go together from that place. And that's the goal. I'm going to take a few minutes now to answer some questions. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Um, and this, these are verses from um, 1 Peter 2.9. And this is, uh, our, our brother here is bringing to mind the fact that Jesus is making an actual new kingdom out of us outsiders. And so we're talking about a place to belong, a family to belong in, um, and uh, we also, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We suffer. We get broken. Bad things happen to us. Um, but we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair because we are to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Wonderful verses for you to check out. 1 Peter 2.9 and 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. Um, let's see what else we have here. The 12-year-old Jesus grew in stature and learning. Was he at some point trained as a rabbi, as a rabbi or promoted or attended a rabbinical school, any indication. Um, Every indication is that Jesus learned the normal way. Uh, He learned his letters and writing and reading. And so he had some kind of education. He had exposure to the word of God and his family. He had exposure to rabbis. But in terms of coming up through the education system, going to the top rabbis, getting their seal of approval, as it were. He did not have that. And so uh, his education was routine and normal. It was not extraordinary. This was, he was not a Harvard or Stanford guy, to put it that way. So he was not coming, uh, claiming to be um, something extraordinary in that way. Uh, So he was very much an outsider. Good questions, good thoughts. Let's pray and be dismissed this morning. Lord Jesus, as we go into this day, we ask that you would go with us. We pray that you would become, in a new and fresh way, our God, our shepherd, the one whose voice we hear and follow. We pray that you would help bond us together as your people. Give us that sense of belonging together as we follow you. We pray that you would do all of this. Take our pain and suffering, the needs that we have, and use them this week to glorify your Father and our Father. We lift all of this up to you in your name, for your glory 
And all God's people said, Amen.